everyone. Welcome back to the Queens of Social Work podcast. I'm your co-host, Queen P. And I'm your co-host, Queen H. We invite you all to join us this week as we share, laugh, cry, and learn through our experiences as women of color who happen to be social workers. So let's get started. So it goes without saying that white supremacy has infiltrated every aspect of our lives on every level and higher education is not exempt from that. We've talked on this show about social work theories and evidence-based practices that are implemented by social service agencies in our households, while we're often not included in these research studies that generate these outcomes and practices. For sure, so many disciplines, including social work, presents an origin story completely void and excluding people of color. Like, why weren't we at the beginning? You know we were. Um, this is what continues to be taught in school, generation after generation, that there are no people of color um, who were at the forefront of these types of, um, what's the word, H? Modalities. Modalities, there you go. So today, um, in light of this discussion, we have a treat for you. We'll be talking to Monica, a.k.a. Queen M. Monica Galvalanes is an intergenerational trauma and liberation center therapist and educator from Queens, New York. Okay, sorry, that wasn't part of it. (laughs) She, She is the owner of Roots and Alchemy LLC, a healing hub for racially marginalized people that offers both individual and community based offerings through a decolonized lens. Her mission is to be a guide for both therapists and therapy seekers in recognizing their cultural amnesia and reclaim mental wellness for themselves and their lineage. I know that's right, Monica. All right, Queen M. Okay. 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 <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to share space with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, and we are excited to have you, Queen M, for sure. So we know that you're the owner of Roots and Alchemy. Tell us, what are your credentials, if any? What can you tell us about you, Roots and Alchemy? Yeah, for sure. So I always say that, like, by trade, I'm a social worker. I say that because um, that's, like, how I was trained under this system. But at my core, I'm just a healer. But um, LMSW, I'm an alum of the CUNY and SUNY systems of New York because these student loans were not going to get me. Um, and I've been trained. In a couple different um, Western modalities, so like EMDR, internal family systems, but I really root my work in um, what I know as liberation psychology, but there's a lot of other ways that it's kind of been adapted. So like Afrocentric psychology, uh, community psychology, um, Black psychology is another way that, that we kind of get to know it because it's kind of evolved and grown. So that's like, uh, if folks want to like Google What's your training? What's in your toolbox? That's kind of what I always tell folks. But then on top of that, what I would say is like my non-Western credentials. I come from a family line of like curanderas, so like healers and like spiritual healers. So I bring that into my practice a lot in Roots and Alchemy, whether I'm working with folks that are just with me for uh, traditional quote unquote therapy, or I'm working with therapists that are trying to kind of get consultation support on how to expand their work. And all of that is really rooted um, in a somatic way too, because we can't separate the mind and the body, you know, when we're kind of like trying to really, really create change within ourselves. I love that. I love that. Um, I, I know I have to ask you a certain thing, but I, I want you to expand a little bit 
on um, Afrocentric psychology or theories because I feel like, you know, going to social work school, I, I went to CUNY too, you know, I had to, I learned, I learned my lesson going private the first time. Second, I was like, I don't have no dollars. So I'm gonna go here. But the school was great because it was one of the, the top social work schools. So why not, <laughs> you know? But um, that is not in the textbook, right? That is not something that you learn. And so um, over time, there are things that some of us have learned, right? Through work and through reading and expansion. But for the social work students or those that may not be aware, can you just expand on that a little bit more so that they can know either where they can find the information and just to know a little bit more about it? Yeah, for sure. So I'll I'll start at like the beginning of when it was kind of like formalized as a school of thought, which um, is liberation psychology. So it was founded by, um, I shouldn't say founded, I would say it was like really created and adapted by Ignacio Martin Bajaron, which was interesting story. He was actually a Jesuit priest that then became a psychologist. So for anyone that knows this or are unaware, when someone goes through seminary training, psychology is part of their training. They have to go through psychology courses. They have to learn human behavior, but they really do it through the lens of community-based support. So even though he was a priest, he had that foundational knowledge. And then when he did eventually kind of go the formal route of being trained as a psychologist, he adapted all that. And this was all happening um, during a time when El Salvador had just gone through a U.S.-backed coup and there was a civil war breaking out. So he was working in El Salvador and through his ministry and the community that he was with, um, working with folks that were being really impacted by the on-the-ground violence, he started to identify and give a voice to the limitations in modern-day psychology. So his perspective was like, how can we sit here and diagnose folks and say that they're depressed without giving life and consideration to the environment around them? How can we sit here and expect people to, you know, be able to um, have normal day-to-day -day functioning if we aren't acknowledging the systems that are oppressing them and not actually allowing them to reach a level of um, self-alignment and attunement that we're saying is what makes someone healthy? So he really started to do a lot of work and research around this with the support of, of his colleagues. And he actually was murdered by US-backed um, soldiers. Um, interesting, fun fact, this kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh, he was murdered on my birthday, November 16th, 1989, but his work lived on. So he had a bunch of essays and writings that weren't completed. So students, because he would sometimes come to the US and do uh, work with uh, post-grad students, a few of them got together and it's called um, Writings for Liberation Psychology. And they got some of his works together. And it's an amazing book. I recommend it for any folks that are really interested in like decolonizing social work, psychoanalysis and things like that. So that was kind of like the foundational, right? Um, of it being a formal framework, if you will. But out of that then comes what we have known as like feminist psychology, Afrocentric psychology, black psychology, because essentially, Liberation psychology was really a general analysis of the way that we support folks through a psychoanalysis for therapeutic modality. But then out of that came 
specific experiences, right? So if we're talking about Afrocentric or Black psychology, it's the same idea of like, how can we expect you to be quote unquote well when you are literally in vivo being harmed and oppressed by your system? But what does that look like specifically for the Black identified individual? What does that specifically look like for folks that are living in Indigenous communities? So out of that kind of came the different branches of it. But like you said, this isn't something that is taught in schools. I know that, so with my graduate program uh, through Stony Brook, I didn't hear about this at all. This was something that I found afterwards. This was something that just because I came from a community organizing um, background, I kind of always had that like, this can't just be it mindset. So when I did some self-study, I was like, what? What is this liberation psychology? And it gave so much language to what I had been kind of identifying as gaps or like, things in the work that we do that had me feeling like, this is kind of weird. And I was lucky enough that when I took my first like social work 101 course in CUNY, when I still didn't think I wanted to be a social worker, I had a professor who gave me the real story about the background of like social work, right? So like, I always shout him out, Dr. Tyrone Parchment. He's one of the few like black male social workers on the PhD level in this country. And he's brilliant, but he was like, yeah, no, Jane Adams, no, it ain't her. Let's talk about Ida B. Wells. Let's talk about, you know, and it was like all that together really kind of like informs, but you're able to work with any of those schools of thought because at the core of them, it's also the same. It's really understanding that not only are we supposed to be symptom managers or not only are we as social workers trying to help our clients cope with their situation, how can we actually help them in resisting the system that's oppressing them? And that looks different for everybody, right? So it's like, sometimes people will be like, so when you work with clients, are you just trying to get them to be activists? It's like, nah, some of them have gone that route, but some of them it's like, no, decolonializing my life to me just looks like taking better care of myself. Just looks like growing my own food instead of having to rely on the food system. Just looks like meditating more. It's these daily actionable steps. It's not this like super big abstract concept that a lot of times people connect to this like label of decolonize. Thank you for that explanation. I think it was so clear and made me also realize that without having sometimes that language, some of us already kind of start doing that, right? Start questioning what we've been taught, the system, knowing that um, for people of color to hold them to this Eurocentric standard of mental illness, it's not accurate. Not at all, nope. So thank you for expanding on that. With that said, we, we know that you're working directly with clients. You, you said a little bit about that, but what does the process of decolonization look like? And talk to us a little bit about your work specifically. And you said some of it, but I, uh, just a little bit more. Yeah, no, for sure. So the process, I always say this, it's not a linear process. It's not a linear process because the imprint that colonization has left on us is so deep and is so layered and is so um informs so much of what we know to be our identity that it it comes with a lot of grief when we talk about decolonizing right like when we have been raised in a society that tells us what you do for a living is who you are 
right? That tells us your worth comes from what you attain. That tells us this is the standard timeline and milestones that you're supposed to follow, right? So we get all these messages. So it is so tied to our identity. So when I work with clients and we sit with this idea of like, what does it look like to decolonize, right? So much of it is unlearning and learning, but so much of it is really kind of like reclaiming your agency around naming who you want to be and who you are. So I happen to work predominantly with Black and Latinx um, adults that have experienced intergenerational trauma that results in like parentification, that results in um, self-abandonment, what people have come to know as like fawning or people pleasing. So that's kind of like my niche, right? So if I'm working with someone like that, right, we would talk about their personal experience of being the, you know, the one that always has to take care of everything, the one that um, always feels alone, the one that is used to abandoning themselves. So we'll talk about the personal experience, but then like actually what, what you said, Queen H is good because it's like having the language, you'll be surprised how much we innately have the language because we know what it's like to be oppressed. We could give language to that a lot. We might not be able to use the academic jargon, but I could tell you what it's like to have to work paycheck to paycheck, right? So we'll go through the personal aspects, but then it's about giving space for them to think about, okay, well, where do you think that your family has learned these strategies of survival? What is it about community that is missing or not missing? Why do you think that we, you know, we often find ourselves feeling like we don't have a support system? And that will open up a conversation of, oh, I never thought about that. Well, actually, what does it feel like for you to hear me say, maybe it's kind of by design, right? That we actually have been taken away from our community. So it's not so much about romanticizing the past, we're educating so we can kind of go back in time and learn what were things that actually allowed us to function on a healthier level that has been stripped from us and we actually have opportunity to reclaim. So it's not this idea of like just giving somebody knowledge, right? When I work with therapists around helping support their practice being a little bit more uh, through a decolonized lens, and I took this from that book, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, right? We talk about a banking system. So a lot of the times what my clients have told me historically is it feels like when someone's trying to put me onto this sort of stuff, they're just talking to me about it, right? Because that, what that looks like is the therapist is just giving information. Well, do you know the, the systemic history of this? And did you know that this is why this is like this? And it's like that we're banking into our client and that's coming from the assumption that they don't know. That's not how people learn, right? So we actually just have to follow the personal process and ask questions because they'll innately make that connection. Because again, no one understands what it's like to be oppressed better than the person who has been and continues to be oppressed. They just need space to connect the dots. So when we talk about what is the process of decolonizing, it isn't just attaining information. It's also giving yourself space to actually feel what the impact of that was, but then feel how you feel about the impact, right? So with everyone, it's a little bit different. Sometimes I have clients that then it's like, well, what is the point, right? And when I hear that, I'm like, okay, this feels like the grief process of it all. This That's that hopelessness. Sometimes I have clients that get pissed off and they're like, this is so unfair. It makes me want to do this. That's the grief process of it too, but it's being manifested as rage. It's being manifested as anger. So 
they want to be heard, you know, like we, like we're all trained, every behavior has a function. So like, what's the function of the hopelessness? What's the function of that? So allowing space for that kind of like relationship building with the history of it and giving them space to connect it to the future is such a beautiful recipe that will organically support the imprint of decolonization within somebody. And then they get to decide what that looks like for them, right? Because it can exist on the spectrum. Um, some folks like are like, I'm totally divesting from the system. And I'm like, just fucking do it. I'll meet you there. And some folks, you know, they just find a, a nook and it's like, nah, like this is really important to me. I'm not trying to move like this anymore. Uh, uh, this is the, these are the changes I'm about to make. Um, but but you respect that, right? Um, as, as therapists who work from a, a decolonial perspective, we aren't necessarily trying to um, have all our clients become like abolitionists but it's about providing them what they didn't get, which was opportunity to name who they are and what they want to be versus going with the script. You know what I'm saying? Oh, MG, Queen M, you preaching tonight. Let me tell you something. I can listen to you talk all day. I am loving it. And it feels like there's so much information in what you are sharing with us and blessing us with tonight. And I really thank you for just being in this work and thank you for holding space for all of the people who come to see you, because girl, that's that's the work right there. That's the work. Um, Thank so you. <laughs> oh God, you're welcome. So Queen M, you were saying, or you were talking to us previously about the liberation psychology, right? And so I want to know how you specifically came to a place where you said, this is the work you want to do. How were you called to this work? Because we all know that our foundation is whitewashed. The education that we get is whitewashed. We are in a country fortunately or unfortunately, that believes that, you know, uh, people of color have no place in the progression of this country. We're just here to serve, right? So tell me how, how this work was called to you. How were you called to it? <laughs> I, okay, so my, the real answer I want to give you, and then I'll give you the, it's another real answer, but it's like, it's like not as real of an answer, if you will. Give us both, give us both. <laughs> so I'm gonna give y'all both, I'll give y'all both, I'll give y'all both. Um, so I firmly believe that like, this is like ancestral work for me. And the reason why I say that is because I know for a fact that had I not had such a rule breaking father, I would not have these qualities in me that like looks at the system and like, is like, I'm about to break all these rules because I have a very high threshold for risk. And my partner always gets mad when I say this on podcasts, but I'm like, they can take my license. I don't care. <laughs> He's like, yo, but they're really about to take your license. So chill. And I'm like, no, they not. So, so I know that that for me, like when I think about my family and I think about even though I'm like the first person to do this type of work in what they would do, I come from a line of people who did it their way and who saw and who had like the gift of vision. So that's how I feel like I, I ended up where I was supposed to end up. The other real answer, but like not as real, is when I first started as a social worker, I didn't want to do therapy. I was like, there's no way I could sit there and listen to somebody talk about their problems for an hour. Like that does not sound like what I want to do. In the moment, right, I didn't realize that it was because I was like not in touch with my own emotions. I really struggled with vulnerability. Like it was just not something that I aligned with. So as I uh, went through my own personal healing, it became something that I fell in love with, right? But during that time, 
I was working in like what we will call like macro level positions. So I was like, I worked for the city as a supervisor, as a consultant, as a manager. So I had a viewpoint of seeing how other people would do their work. And part of a lot of the jobs that I did was analyzing and I mean, basically judging the work of people, right? So I would see how folks that were either like mental health counselors or social workers would work one-on-one -on -one or would work in communities. And I saw so much like, and it's not shade to like people that, you know, this is their pocket, but it's like, people are coming in talking about real life stress stuff. And it's like, okay, well, let's do like a deep breath. And I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Like This doesn't feel like the types of conversations and spaces that we should be holding. But then also what I saw was then with the um, practitioners themselves, how much they were oppressed also, and how much they were also really struggling with having to give out this type of medicine, which is not the medicine that we need as, as communities. So when I started um, my own practice, I was like, okay, I have a chance to do this my way for once. And I know they're like, cause you know, you find everything on social media. So like every other therapist, you follow a bunch of therapists too. So you find the bullshit and you find the real shit. So that's when I started to see like, okay, there's people out there that have the same perspective. How can this kind of like grow? So it was definitely through observation, but I always had that like innate quality of like, I, I want to be a little bit of a rule breaker. Um, I, I'm a first gen immigrant. My mom's Dominican. My father was Ecuadorian. I grew up in Jamaica, Queens. You know, we, we had it rough. You know what I'm saying? Like we had we had great things, but it was a working class situation. So personally, I also always experienced the experience of being othered. So that informs my work as well. Kind of like understanding what it looks like when you are navigating systems that actually do not want you to succeed, right? So when I got into the mental health space, folks always say when they talk about the education system, they're like, oh, but it's, it's, it's not broken, it's by design. You know what I'm saying? And I agree with that, but I think the same thing goes for the mental health field. It's not that it's broken. We're functioning the way we're supposed to function. We're supposed to be a Band-Aid just to get folks to be okay enough to continue to engage in society the way that the system needs it to engage in a capitalistic society. We're not actually supposed to, under the diagnostic Western medical framework that we're trained under, help people get free. Because if people got free, then people would start asking questions and moving a little bit differently. So that that was kind of like my, my pivot. It was just my personal experience and then I had the opportunity. Ooh, it sounds like an awakening. Yes, yes, exactly. Like the the third eye opened up and it was like, hold on, right? Mm, and it can't close now. <laughs> yes. Girl. I think that happens to a lot of us because I feel like he and I have discussed this. I felt like when I came into the field, I also said I would not do therapeutic work. I was like, um, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but it's not that. <laughs> It's not that. I said I wasn't going to work for ACS and I wasn't going to do therapy. Um, I didn't work for ACS. I worked for, but child welfare is right there. <laughs> and it's right there working in foster care. And I try to justify that because I was like, I'm not taking the kids out the home. I'm trying to help them get home. But it, it was still a lot, right? And, and then I end up in this space of also doing therapy as well. And I was like, what? How do I get here? 
but but when you realize too that you're coming from a different lens, sometimes you feel that and until you get into your niche and really understand how you do therapy and how you can incorporate some of the things that we learn, but you also have to seek out other knowledge, right? Other ways of doing therapy. You initially feel like I'm not doing this right or can I do this? But when you see how it works for your clients and your clients are able to live in a different space, you realize, oh, I am doing this right. Just because I don't talk about neurodiversity and I'm using all these damn terms, because I like to tell people I'm simple. Okay, I'm simple. You either got it or you don't got it. What's, what's wrong with you today? What's up? Right. I think we get too caught up in sounding smart than being there, than being present, than being who we fully are. And when we can't be who we fully are, we cannot help the person in front of us. Right. Nope, 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 nope. I want to make a point on your jargon piece because I think that is so important. So there's like, there's two things I want to say. The first one and something that I really appreciate um, from the liberation psych lens is one of the main critiques. It, it started as a critique, but then it actually became a pillar of the work. So one of the main uh, pillars of the work is his critique of like psychology wants to be a science so bad. Um, and obviously he, it's not him saying that there isn't value in data and research and, and analyzation of evidence and, and tracking patterns and all that stuff, that's very important. But when you want to fit into the, the niche of being a science, you lose so much, right? And what do you lose? You lose the undescribable magic of what humans carry. You lose out spirituality you lose out community, you lose out so many things. So when folks get so stuck on jargon, when you're like, listen, I'm simple. I'm like, yeah, because this ain't rocket science. They want us to believe it's rocket science, but it's not rocket science. It's human connection and it's disconnection that has happened to us along the way that now has caused a pain that has not been tended to, that has now caused an emotional injury that is intergenerational for so many of us. But when we get caught up in the scientific terms, and that's not to say like, don't know the, the science of how your body works. Like we have to understand that, right? But like, that's so intuitive too. Like, you know when something's not right. You might not know the name for it, but you know when something's not right. So I think, especially for clinicians of color, like when, I, when I'm working with practitioners, I'm like, don't buy the white supremacist hype. Don't think that because you don't have the $10 words that what you're saying is valued any less. Don't spend so much time trying to learn, 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 learn to then present in a certain way. Learn, but to keep it here, not for presentation purposes, because the jargon will have you tripped up. There's a lot of people out there that they got the jargon down, but when you sit across from them, it's like somebody once told me, because I use a lot of slang and I used to be like a self-conscious about that. And I remember he was like, listen, if you go into a room and they can't value what you're saying, it's 
what you're saying is real just because you got a couple curse words or slang in there, they're actually not that intelligent to like actually get to the crux of the message. And I remember that set me free so much. And then I just started throwing F-bombs everywhere and I got a little excessive. But, but it really like it, it really had such an impact on me because I'm like, if you can't hear me just because of how I'm coming off, you can't hear anybody. That's that's the you thing. I appreciate that. I, I think it's something that I would say our generation, right? If you're a millennial, you are in that last generation of act right politics, right? This is how you have to present yourself. This is what you need to do, how you need to show up. And it's hard to come out of that. And so that's why your work is so important in the work that everybody's doing. So with that said, like in the next five years, where will the art and practice of therapy be as it relates to decolonization, in your opinion? And what sort of changes do we expect to see in the mental health field as a result? Yeah, I'm definitely seeing a big trend in folks uh, reconnecting to uh what I would call kind of like sacred modalities of healing, whether that's like ancestral veneration, whether that's um, plant medicine, whether that is breath work, um, not the breath work that we see now, but like, you know, like indigenous rooted breath work, spirituality. I see so many folks, um, I don't know what it is, whether it's like feeling more comfortable in coming out of the shadows with it because it's it's out there more or whether it's like the way of the world has just created space for them to reconnect to it. Therefore, now they're giving it back out to their people. But I see a lot of that. And the other thing I'm noticing also is a lot more therapists recognizing the limitations of mainstream therapy and like leaving the profession to become healers or coaches in a in a way that they don't have to be policed and limited by our licensing board and the other medical systems that we have to abide by. I see that a lot. So I can imagine that in five years, um, we're gonna see a lot more therapists expanding out of just the therapist hat. And I think we're gonna see a lot more folks incorporating more of these like indigenous styles of, of healing into their practice. Now with that, you know, Similar to like during the lockdown when I started to see a lot more therapists coming online and like therapy became like cool, I feel like in 2020, it was like everybody wants to be in therapy, everybody wants to be a therapist and that was beautiful. But I think just knowing the way that the, like universal law duality is there. So the same way I think that's amazing, I could also see the other side of that coin being like folks that, um, well, let me not say folks, white people then kind of repackaging our stuff even more and selling it out without actually having any ancestral roots to the type of work that they're trying to get people um, to buy from them. So I could also see it leaning in that direction a lot more, but you know, the white people are gonna white people and that's what they're gonna do. But for, for us, I could see a lot more security and confidence in um, being honest, right? And like really reclaiming and like relearning. I see so many people, therapists specifically like, coming from this perspective of like, okay, this modality that I used to use, right? What are the actual indigenous roots of that, right? Like when you think about EMDR and it's like, oh, it's like just left and right. It's like, like that's drumming, like that's walking, like that's dancing, you know, like what did that look like historically? So I do see a lot more of a homecoming happening. So in five years, I could see it even being bigger. 
thank you for sharing that. You know, we talked on an episode, ooh, how many moons ago about something similar in terms of yoga, right? And the foundations and origins of yoga. I know we, I feel like we just had this conversation, but I know it was some time ago and just white people, white peopling and not, not giving credit where credit is due. And, you know, anyway, that's another conversation because we can go there. Um, and normally in this episode, it would be Queen H going off and I'd be like, go off H because H be getting to it. I take a long time to get to the point, but H be right there. She'd be ready to go. So my question is, as providers, what can we do to resist and repair some of the damage being done by white supremacy in our work? And I think you kind of alluded to at just two seconds ago what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I always encourage therapists, clinicians, like whatever label to um, really take time to learn the history of what we're being taught versus just taking what we're taught at face value, right? To your question about resist and repair, right? So the repair part to me feels very much like giving credit and acknowledgement where it's due, allowing um, the space for not just you, but then your clients to also learn like what we're actually practicing is this, right? Everybody's different. Like there's some therapists that like work in a more like covert way where it's kind of like, we're doing this. And then there's therapists that are very much like, oh no, we're going to uh, go through this because of this, because of that. Educate them. Like, yeah, so like, Typically, this is known as this, and these are actually the roots, like it's coming from this. These are the practices, so we're, we're going to use that language. We're going to use that uh, moment to really kind of pay respects to the actual origins of it. In response to resisting, and this is like a personal journey, because like I mentioned in the beginning, right, there has to be an inner liberation before there can be a collective liberation. So in order for therapists to feel the responsibility and the uh, safety in resisting, you have to do your own personal liberation work. And that could look a couple different ways, right? That looks like connecting yourself to people or communities that speak that, that hold those values, that, that share in that space so you can kind of learn, right? And the other part of that I would say is remain ever suspicious of your attachments to the things that you've learned. Because sometimes as therapists, it's like, well, what do you mean you don't use a treatment plan? Like, how could you blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, well, why are you going so hard over a treatment plan? Like, let's use attachment theory on ourselves. Why are we so attached to this thing that if, it does, if, if it's not in reach to us, we feel destabilized or we feel activated? What is there? We have to remain suspicious of the way that we relate to what happens. Like, it's bringing me back to a conversation I had put out. Um, I forgot what platforms I was throwing shade at somebody. I forgot who, but it was, <laughs> it was like not I'm, throwing you know, shade. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I'm, I just be in a mood. Like if I don't eat breakfast, I'm, I'm upset. So I was, I was making a comment about how um, I think that folks need to stop um, putting so much emphasis on like psychotherapy notes, right? And the, there, there became a conversation around like, oh, but that's how like um, community health gets paid. That's how they do their insurance, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, valid for sure. Also, why can't we try to imagine a way in which we no longer have to rely on insurance or grant funding, you know? And it's like, oh, but then it's always like a but this. So in addition to that, be suspicious of your attachment, give yourself permission to imagine, right? Because that's also what colonization does. It creates buckets and categories 
and it takes away our imagination. And there's actually so much historical evidence of how we used to function before these systems were in place. So when you give yourself time to also learn the history, if you can't access your imagination, you could see it in black and white. So I think in regards to that this part, um, th those things feel really important, but I also say that understanding like how difficult that can be because we've gotten used to functioning the way that we function. And I think it was Tracy Ellis Ross that, should, that said something like, you know, when you're sitting in a chair, you don't shift until it becomes uncomfortable. That's just like human behavior. So if you are comfortable, you might not need to resist. But it's kind of like, how uncomfortable have we become with the discomfort? Because I know none of us are that comfortable. So it's just kind of like remembering that. I think um, we can also apply this to any aspect of social work, right? Because, you know, the episode is decolonizing social work. And I know we're speaking a lot about therapy. Um, but even when you do, for instance, macro work and you're dealing with policy and government systems, how are you resisting and repairing in the work that you do when you do meso level work, when you do micro work, right? Um, and I think it's in every, every aspect. Um, even when I worked foster care, I used to get so pissed when they would diagnose every kid with ADHD and give them medication and do all of this. And I, was, I wasn't even a social worker then. I was a, a case worker, I was bachelor level. And even then I knew that it was wrong. And I would do things in my own way to kind of resist that diagnosis. I would say, is it really ADHD? Is it this, that, you know, can we look at it? Because this is a traumatic situation for this child. So what is the response going to be? Yes, it looks like what they say ADHD is, but they were taken from their home. They were abused by maybe their parent, right? So of course, how can you sit still if that's the case, right? You can't sit still. Why would you not be attention seeking? Why would you not be doing all these things? And then kids also don't have language, right? to be able to say, my feelings are hurt when you do that. We have to teach them to be able to do that. What they do instead is they bust you in your head <laughs> or they, they cuss you out or they pee to bed or they do this, they do that. And, and, and it's to be mindful. So even then I was thinking, you know, about stuff in that way. So even if you're not a therapist and you're in the field of social work, you can, you know, apply this, to every aspect of this work, right? Every single day, because even when I do consultation in a Western style, right? With the therapist that I'm working with, the one thing that I ask them is age, culture, race and ethnicity, right? Socioeconomic status, right? Because all of that affects how you're doing work with people, right? You have to look at everything that's there. Like we're not just talking about, okay, they're presenting as depressed, but why are they depressed? Well, if you're Brooks, you're gonna be depressed. If you just caught your baby father sleeping with somebody, you wanna bust him in his head. So you're not talking about harming somebody else. You're not a danger to somebody else. Hell, he might need to get busted in his head, girl. Listen, but is he worth going to jail for? That's what I'm gonna ask you. How can we work on this? Because he didn't care about it when he was um talking to Tanya, uh, Rashonda, uh, uh, 
Shaquaja and uh, Shaniqua. He wasn't thinking about you. So why are you thinking? Why are you studying him? Like, you know, anyway, I'm going off. What you want the people to know? Let me get back on track, right? Let me get... What <laughs> That's you want? hilarious. What you want people to no, know? No, ev- everything you said, valid. Like, 100%. And you're right. And, I, and I'm glad you said that. Um, obviously, um, I'm, I'm talking the most through, through a therapeutic lens because that's just what I do now. But you're right. This applies to any level of social work and i don't know if this was um y'all experience but i know with me what i often heard especially if you're like in a macro or meso level position it's like okay so i'm gonna say something but like it's not like anything's gonna happen like they're still gonna put this policy in place like we still have to adhere to this and in my mind i always like offer two things up for folks it's like one it's like okay that might be true, right? You might say something and they might still go ahead with whatever racist ass policy is in place for this process, but let the record show you said something. Let the record show you said something. Let the record show you were not quiet in the face of obvious harm and oppression and racism and any other ism that might be attached to that. And the other thing is like, if we all felt that way, everybody would be quiet. And that is what the system banks on for us to feel so powerless that we do not use our power. There is nothing more dangerous than not recognizing the power that you hold. Even if that is just in that moment, stopping the conversation and saying what you have to say, that's power. I just stopped the conversation. I just paused the process. Maybe I didn't change mine, but I made you uncomfortable. That's power. So don't lose your power in that process because it's very easy to be like, well, what's the point? It's not like blah, 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 blah. And it's like, bro, imagine if we if we all felt like that all the time, where would we be? So we can't feel like that because we still have places to go. But I 100% agree. If this applies across the board because systems are made up of people. Systems are not this like abstract, like gooey, gray, like matter. Systems are made up of people. So individually, we have to do so much work um, in order to create any type of, I'll be honest with you, I stopped saying change because I'm not from the school of thought of like, we need to change the systems. I feel like we need to, they need to be broken down and we need to create our own. But that again, it's the same thing. How are you going to abolish something? You still need to tap into your power. So yes, 100% what you said, Queen H. I love that. So you want the people to know that your power has purpose and, and you are not powerless. Amen. Let me, let me, can y'all hear my snap? Cause I'm here for it. Okay. So Queen M, how do our good people, our good listeners get in touch with you? <laughs> they could call me at, no, I'm kidding. I'm not going to The best way is, so they could definitely follow me on Instagram. That's the only social media I have because I do not have the capacity for anything else. But it's at Roots and Alchemy, R-O-O-T-S and A-L-C-H-E-M-Y. They could uh, go to my website if they want to send me an email, if they want to potentially book services and to get all the other information. And that's rootsandalchemyplc.com. Those are the best ways. I'm not afraid of DMs in my Instagram if you have something you want to share, if you have a question you want to ask. Um, it is me, so I'll get back to you. But those are the two best routes for folks to connect with me. 
Thank you so much. This has been a good discussion. It made me realize I might have been decolonizing all this time and didn't know the words. Okay. See the benefit of language. Okay. <laughs> Listen, because I shake up the room. Okay. And P knows that. I go to, I don't like this. We're not doing this. No. We're not doing Indeed. it. Interrupt. Indeed. I'm going to interrupt and disrupt. Okay. I will sure do that. Because who's going to find me? Who's going to check me, boo? Okay. Listen, Queen H resists from morning. <laughs> she be ready to fight, kicking down. No, we're not doing that. Get your people in them. Because we're about to roll up. Not, right? One time. Not from the morning. You better than me, girl. My resistance starts at like 12 p.m. Oh, no. Mind <laughs> me, as soon as I step in the door, I wave the 4-4. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> I'm ready. And that's accurate. That, that's quite accurate, Queen H, for sure. <laughs> so thank you so much, Queen M, for being on. And we'll have all your information in the show notes. Thank you all for listening. If you guys want to connect with us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at the Queens of Social Work Pod or on Instagram at the Queens of Social Work. If you want more information on the topic we discussed today, feel free to check out our show notes or email us at thequeensofsocialwork at gmail.com. We'd really appreciate it if you rate, review, and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. 